everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. I'm so tempted to make bad puns about the hyphen and hyphen, but I will spare you and just say we are definitely going to talk about an hyphen today. First up, I want to recap their webtoon, Dark Moon, The Blood Altar. So obviously, spoiler alert. The second half of the episode, I want to recap their concert, their Fate World Tour in Chicago. And I'm doing this on purpose, the webtoon first, because trust me, you'll appreciate the live show recap way more afterwards. You'll see that this show is good and entertaining for anyone. You don't have to know the story to be entertained. But it really does take on a new level of excitement and just coolness and impressiveness if you know the background. So they put on an engaging show for all audiences, but hardcore fans of N-Hyphen and their webtoon, they got an extra special treat. If you're following the music video story, this show really did immerse you back there in ways I will point out after the webtoon recap. So let's start with that without another moment to spare. The shortest way to sum up Dark Moon is it's a webtoon where N-Hyphen's characters play reincarnated knights slash vampires. Werewolves go to the rival school, these guys try to cosplay as humans, at first they fear the stereotypes and how everyone assumes all vampires are bad, murderers. They eventually do reveal themselves to Suha, realize she's the reincarnated princess who gave them their powers in a past life. That's why they feel inextricably bound to her story. Their fates are intertwined, they get power from each other, she realizes there are good vampires out there and overcomes her fear of them. She also learns there are good werewolves too, who are not always adversaries. Sometimes they actually do end up working with the vampires, but there's still that coldness there. They're not buddy-buddy, that's for sure. And part of that tension is with her a little bit of a love triangle situation, because one wolf, Khan, he saw Suha on the night of a full moon. And during the full moon, a werewolf falls in love eternally with whoever their eyes lock with first. So Khan is in love with someone who does not love him back and who really likes Eli, who is one of the main vampires. He seems character. Darden also loves Suha, and he has spent many a lifetime trying to get with her. He's power-hungry, status-hungry, because he wants her, whether she wants him or not. He's pursuing her and has this rageful, if-I-can't-have-you-no-one-can mentality. He's a really toxic dude, one of the main villains of the story. The other main character to note is Marge, who used to basically house the vampires in their orphanage. They describe it as like a prison, but she calls it this boarding school the vampire boys were raised in for their own protection. But they viewed it as they fled captivity, and they celebrate the day they escaped with their version of a birthday party every year. The drunk dazed music video setting, that mansion. The main plots then, there's romance, but also mostly this concept of who has power and who should. How to keep power away from who doesn't deserve it and keep the power with people like them who have been entrusted in past decades, past lifetimes, to hold on to this power and keep it out of his hands. That was the queen's deathbed wish. Keep the power away from evildoers the romance angle, and the big concept of fate. What about this prophecy will be recreated in this reincarnated lifetime? And how much sway, how much autonomy, how much control do they actually have over who they are and who they become? Then, of course, there's kind of a Beauty and the Beast angle to interpret the story through as they loathe themselves at first and believe some of the prejudices they get to them about werewolves or vampires being murderers and irredeemable. These guys try all the time to keep their bad impulses under wraps. 
That's why they only actually give in to the impulse to drink blood once a year at that birthday party. Otherwise, they try to keep their resolve. The very condensed summary of the chapters we talked about in past episodes of the show, the story starts with Suha, who at first hates vampires and is scared of them, starting Desolus Academy as a new student. She has superhuman power too. She wanted to keep it under wraps, especially because she was mad that she had that power because it meant people assumed she was a vampire. She later learned she was that reincarnated princess. But at first she thought they thought she was a vampire and that was like a dirty word to her. Like, don't call me that, that's offensive. Word gets out just among human cosplaying Heli and company. The boys at first hesitate, but they do get pretty close to Suha. But it's quite funny because they all get close to Suha. Like, when one of them suggests a date night, the others follow suit, like, we'll come with you. The wolves are very testy with the vampires, not just because it's a classic school rivalry where they have to settle their differences on the nightball court, but also because of this murder, this murder mystery. Someone from Sunshine City School, the werewolf school, was murdered, and they assume a vampire must have done it. Multiple times, Suha does get kidnapped and has to fend off evil vampires, but when that happens and these guys rescue her, she really starts to understand not all the vampires are like that. She has scarred memories from them in the past, though, since her childhood friend Chris was killed by them, killed by vampires. Which makes it particularly evil and cruel that Darden at first pretends to be Chris, uses his magic to masquerade as Chris, making her think he had been brought back to life or something. They repeatedly bring up biting each other's necks, which they don't because they agree it's too weird, but that's kind of their sign of commitment. Like trusting someone that much, that's a physical sign proving that trust. Suha ends up learning the guys have these powers after she goes to that party in the mansion, then forgot something, turns around and goes back after the party's over, and they didn't wait long enough to start the after party, which was a bloody, gory feast that she was terrified about. Marge shows up, who is at first very skeptically eyed by the boys because they view her as their jail guard, essentially. But you really change your view on Marge as the story progresses. And she explains how she felt like, genuinely, she was doing what she had to do to protect them and the magic. That doesn't mean it's all water under the bridge. There's still hard feelings. But they understand a bit more of her motives, where she's coming from. March has arrived on campus to talk to them because she's gotten the memo Suha is there, part of the prophecy. There are lots of fight scenes and dramatic searches as the vampires and werewolves end up teaming up kind of in a enemy of the enemy is my friend way as they both have these shared goals. Rescue Suha after she was captured and free these werewolves because some of their counterparts are not dead. They believe they were held captive somewhere. So they're sort of helping each other out in a way. And in some situations, they really do come to each other's rescue. Maybe a bit unwillingly, but they do. They slay many vampires along the way, many of the bad ones. They get some info, though, out of the ones that are still alive. They kind of extort them, find out stuff like what this blood altar ritual entails that Suha's presence is required for. At that altar, Darden is there, plotting out loud, as movie villains tend to do, while we see that Suha and Marge are both trapped there. He's scheming and getting the supplies he needs for the ritual that will basically suck away their magic and give it all to him. Some of the items needed for this ritual are a magic sword and a book. 
The book is what those evil vampires admit they were acting on the orders of retrieving. They find out in a vision of sorts from Suha's voice telepathically that they need to get the sword. Along the way, they have to deal with more enemies, more combat, getting locked in a storage room, getting sucked away by this dark force, this black fog. They benefit from the fact when you slay a vampire, you also slay every vampire they bit. It's like a domino effect. So they slay a leader of a group, so they all keel over. A flashback origin story unfolds that's critical to the plot in episode 43 called A Favor. The ultimate decision before the princess was to choose between taking power at the expense of others or share it. So basically, gain a bunch of power and hurt others, or gain a bit of power and spread it around and give other people power too. She chose the latter, and so some of her power goes into those vampires, the reincarnated knights. They visit Autumnal, a vampires-only town, slay a bunch of residents, the evil vampires, then extort the mayor to get info. The mayor tells them where the wolves are locked up. They get the keys from him, rescue those wolf brothers, and this is after the wolves stepped up and literally helped drag the vampires to safety during a massive fight. Khan is kidnapped, then hears more about his backstory. He realizes he actually has very unique powers. He's not just some mutt. He actually has a unique skill set and a unique role in the prophecy. The boys arrive to this big altar where Suha is trapped and the ritual has started. So magically, she's physically incapable of leaving that pedestal until the process is complete. So they just have to watch guiltily. Then there's this impassioned monologue from Heli where he goes into the deeper reason behind the neck biting. Like, I didn't offer just as a sign of trust. It was this sense of an eternal promise to each other to always be there for each other. That may have seemed like a lengthy summary, but I just told you what happened across 60 episodes as quickly as I could, so you're welcome. I tried to be comprehensive. What we have not yet talked about on the show is what happened after that monologue. So episode 61, Despair, is where we left off. Darden seems to be winning. He kicked Heli off the altar so he falls, but Heli is confused because he's still alive and he still has that symbol on the back of his hand, the pattern that represents his powers. So why does he have the glowing indicator of superpowers still if they're gone? There's still time. Darden has this evil monologue, basically threatening to kill everyone Suha loves if she doesn't just shut up and complete the ritual. All the wolves and Heli come too if they lost consciousness and are ready to put up another fight. Episode 62, Halt. After putting up this fight with the sword, Darden sicked some bad vampires on Heli. Heli rushes over to see if he can help Khan, who seems unconscious. Darden's freaking out, like, how are you guys so resilient? You guys should be drained by now of power. What's going on? The moonlight disappears, which means that everybody goes back to human form, except for one wolf for unexplained reasons. Episode 63, Coercion. The bad versus the good vampires, very much ready to throw hands. Darden slashes the wolf. Heli charges at Darden until Darden threatens him that he'll hurt Suha if he keeps going. Darden also orders Khan around like a literal dog. These hooded figures that reminded me of the ones from an Enhyphen video seen in the windows, those hooded characters surround the members, closing in on them. 
Darden orders Hilai and Khan to both get on their knees, pledge to be his loyal servants forever, and says that's what it will take. They pause before committing. Before they can take this vow of sorts, Darden gives up waiting and just kicks them. So Heli goes flying again off the platform. There's a super deep symbolic moment now where Heli is in the darkness and scared and crying and wondering why he's scared because he recalled in the past, quote, I stopped fearing darkness. When in the dark, I could sense things even more clearly. Darkness is my territory. Shadows are a part of me, unquote. That's actually quite deep. He learned to stop being afraid of darkness when he realized it could be an asset to have that part of you, like a yin and yang effect. Episode 64, The Awakening. That is when the deep, if corny, realization dawns on them that the power has been with them all along. So Suha has been the motivation, motivation activation of their power. But the source of the power itself was always them. They didn't need her for that part. They had it in them to put up a fight, regardless of Suha's ability. That's why when Suha was unconscious, it didn't affect their fighting resilience like expected. Because they realized they had relied on her because they needed a source of motivation to use their magic. But now that she was motivation, unconscious or not, they could easily use those powers. The powers became super accessible to those fighting for being protectors, fighting for a noble cause, which is why I always had a feeling Darden would lose in the end, because the moral of the story is true power goes to those who deserve it. Power worth having goes to those who deserve it. That's how I interpret it. Episode 65, Counter-Strike. So many fight scenes ensue, and Khan hears a voice that tells him more about his backstory and how his instincts, fate will be a guide. Episode 66, Collapsing. The altar starts to collapse. And later it feels symbolic that it does, but its pedestal, its trunk basically, is still standing. Like there is still present a foundation that's upright to rebuild off of. But the altar itself fell apart. Darden, it's hard to tell if he intentionally jumped or if he fell, but he does go off the altar headfirst. Lands in the water, the water turns red. In episode 67, Pledge of Allegiance, Suha expresses how grateful she is she got to know them. She got to know Heli. They have a magical kiss and reunion now that she's woken up. Magical forces raise her up above the pedestal. Now good magic is at play. And this whole magic ceremony of sorts occurs, which really honestly produced the most emotionally effective illustrations of the entire webtoon so far. Just seeing all the characters, wolves and vampires alike, kneel down in a circle around this pedestal and now levitating reinvigorated princess. Like they're preparing for a big transfer of power. But in episode 68, we learn Darden is not dead and he goes back on offense. But the tables have turned, so now Suha has all the power from the ritual. Marge has a knockout monologue where she reminds him why, at the end of the day, he was destined to be a loser in this battle. Quote, it was respect that kept the royal family line going. To inherit the royal powers, you need a truthful pledge of allegiance. Only the one approved by both tribes gets to inherit the royal powers. The more you try to force it, the more it will slip away, just like winning someone's heart, unquote. That is a knockout quote. The more you try to force it, the more it slips away. 
sums up this whole fate-themed story. Darden played with fate. He didn't trust it, and he tried to make his world something it was not destined to be. It's also meaningful that the power's only going to go to who united both sides, which was Suha. A figure like Darden does not have good karma. Yes, and hyphen song title, reference intended. Now he does officially die. He says, take care of the princess for me, and literally falls on his sword. Episode 69, Back to Normal. Marge asks your majesty what to do now, and she says, just call me Suha. The hierarchy has been broken. A new era's here. Let's try to be normal kids. The kingdom saved. Darden's gone. Things are kind of back to normal. Heli and company go back to being swooned over popular boys. And Suha gets to move into a new dorm that finally opened up for her, so she's no longer in that weird makeshift closet-type space. And just like in one of the first chapters, the crew shows up to help her set up in her room. Solon, though, his usual curmudgeonly self, only offers to help in the form of scolding her for not being better at asking for help. Like, geez, it shouldn't be hard to prompt you to ask. Once again, an offer to go on a date leads to every guy in Heli's friend group being like, yeah, let's all go hang out. Episode 70 is the finale. Suha visits Sunshine City School because Khan is having a party, a birthday party. The other guys join her, though, which enrages Khan because they were uninvited. They got him mocking gifts, too. A bone, a frisbee. So yeah, clearly there's still some bad blood, or at best, unappreciated jokes at the expense of each other between the wolves and vampires. One of them did bring a gift, though. A handshake. Suha and Khan, though, do get some time apart from the pack to talk, no pack pun intended, and Khan talks about, you know, if you really do love someone, which I'm now destined to do forever, you do set them free. You just want them to be happy no matter what, so Suha, don't worry about me, just live your life, and I'll be happy if you're happy. A surprise party-goer Suha interacts with next, the holy knight of the kingdom of Varger, Luca, and his twin, Louis. At that point, I knew this was not over yet. Walking back from the party, the boys bicker among themselves like they usually do, and they realize Suha and Hilai have been so quiet because they've been telepathically communicating the whole time. The final scene is Desolus Academy during winter break, so Suha's walking around, outdoors in the snow, passing by the building, and crosses paths with someone who she says must be, quote, the one who took my place, unquote. Then it was no surprise that episode 71 came out, a special bonus teaser that revealed indeed this is to be continued. So mission one accomplished, but new characters, the backstory of the kingdom of Varger, the murder never really got resolved, loose ends need tying up. So our teasers are, the next chapter will be Dark Moon, the Children of Vanfield, where the boys reunite at Vanfield House, the boarding school they grew up in. Then will come out Dark Moon, Varger's Blood, which is apparently about their nightly selves coming out more. So it sounds like the next chapter, very vampire-focused. Then after that, the night aspect of their story is more of a focus. So much in store, which of course I will keep you posted on, so stay tuned. Now you will better appreciate all of the webtoon connections and hyphen gave in the live musical that was their concert. The opening video showed them basically enter the world of the webtoon. This giant moon was swallowed up in flames. There were all these bloody scenes where the members were feasting on that bloody feast. 
and the castle background was their old stomping grounds, Vanfield House. And that party scene from the Drunk Dazed video and related to the webtoon was the opening number, Drunk Dazed. They had the coolest intro too. The magic powers they flex in the webtoon and in the opening video they brought to life on stage. So 2D became 4D action. Like Nicky with a snap of his fingers, like physically the Nicky on stage in front of me snapped his fingers and the whole stage went black for a second. Then bloomed in color again. It was so cool. Jake, with just waves of his arms, produced flames that popped up, both in the video and on the stage. The members in person held props from the video too, like a flower, the pocket watch, slash time turner. After having set the scene in their old stomping grounds, they escaped, basically. And the story that unfolded kind of showed them trying a new life, starting anew. So the next song was Blockbuster, where they sing about The only way out is through, let's go, we'll make it through every crossroad, we draw our own map, we'll be the star of our own movie, we are taking back power in our lives. They performed it as a full group, which was super cool to see. The going is getting extra tough alone, and they want someone to be their comfort and companionship. So it made sense that the next song was Let Me In and Flicker, which was about seizing that flicker of light you see in the distance, which is a chance at a relationship. That sense that their potential was slipping away was really felt with their choreography. They really were just so good at acting through dance, really bringing to life this emotional routine, like literally carrying each other, leaning on each other, dragging each other choking each other, like they were combative in some scenes, best friends in others, playing characters throughout though. It really was musical-esque, very character-heavy, very action-packed, very dramatic. The next performance was Fever, another emotive performance, which has the music video with the black fog, like in the webtoon. But despite the fog and loneliness, they fight another day and have new resolve, and that's why it was perfect that the next track was Future Perfect. And they came back on stage ready to start over, wearing all-white outfits like a fresh start. They abandoned their princely, regal, embellished, fancy-schmancy outfits. Then they sang Blessed Cursed, reflecting back on days feeling stuck in this mental jail. So the jail cell background on the screen, very apt. Then there was the coolest effect on screen in part of Blessed Cursed that really was like from the music video, very simulated reality-like. Like, they look like, not holograms, but on screen they looked digified. They looked translucent, ghostly, glitchy, like they were versions of themselves that could pop away in a moment. Really matching the feel of the show at this point, that opportunities are slipping away very quickly, without much heads up. So they had a glimpse of getting through tough times, having the strength to start anew. Further, though, we see discontent brewing, because then they went to a video intermission that showed the members in heaven, but with some sinister components. The blood in the fountain, much like the blood altar ritual. The butterfly he soon painted, much like a butterfly that appeared at Vanfield House in the opening video. Next up came some songs questioning what path to go on and really making their own way, basically not worrying if they can get into heaven, defining their own rules so rule breaking is not a concern. So next was Attention Please, which had this cool, again, 2D and 3D pairing with multicolored spotlights that matched the vibrancy and variety of the 2D colors that splatter painted a city scene. Then, of course, the song Paradox Invasion, super related. 
then came a more vulnerable part of the show. Just opening up more emotionally, feeling confident enough to do so with just a little bit, that feeling when, which is so, so sweet live. And Jay played the guitar, which was autographed for some reason. Made me hyped like, oh my gosh, this is the last stop of the US tour. Is he gonna like gift this to a special fan or something? Nope, I don't know why it was signed. But anyway, that was very sweet. And they performed, again, 2D brought into 4D, surrounded by flowers physically and 2D flowers on the screen behind them. So four of them performed That Feeling When, and then the others performed just a little bit with He Soon on the piano. In a very dramatic, symbolic moment, the screen said, and Jean, please put up your phone flashlights. So the side screens went black, lit up by fans' phones, and He Soon under a spotlight. Then the middle had the peaceful flower meadow scene still. So a literal dark and light contrast with the fans providing the light and the darkness. So that we're in this together message continued to be sent during the next song, Shout Out. They sang about let's shake the world together. And they made sure that message was really loud and clear, keeping the focus on that with just background screens in big bold letters, black and white, saying shout out again and again. The message also appeared on little screens on the sides of this platform that formed stairs that rose. So they just stood tall on the runway, surrounded by the message, shout out. Thematically, it was fitting to then go to Go Big or Go Home, which is when they panned to different audience members for dance breaks. It was so cute. There was this one group in the back of the floor level who were doing Ring Around the Rosie and stuff throughout the whole night, just playing games together, dancing together. It was so cute. And they got picked on. They got a shout out and a dance break during Go Big or Go Home. As did another woman who just was so impressive with her lack of caring. Like, she really did dance like no one was watching. Living her life. Love it. I would like to think it's N-Hyphen's choice that their shows have that floor seating arrangement where the back half is empty, so there's room for people to dance around and have that fun together. I know sometimes that's a ticketing thing, but I do wonder if some artists actually request that ticketing limitation so that there is the back half empty for that fun to be had. The next chapter of the show was after a video that showed the members really going through it. Writhing in pain, on the now messy, destroyed banquet table, furniture toppled over, wincing, undergoing a painful transformation, but then appearing floating in water, like it was difficult but necessary to have this cleansing, this rebirth, another clean slate. And maybe it didn't work. They did not absolve themselves from all their sins. Because the next part of the show was all songs from Dark Blood. Which was centered around that key word for the tour and the album intro, Fate. Again, through visuals, choreography, and the outfits too. Really dramatic black and red vampire-inspired ensembles. And they were back to that fancy castle placement. So this structure was cool. First half was in vampire world. The middle was more human. Then at the end they went back to the dark vampire realm. They seem to be sinning what I interpret as their regret that they became who they despised. Like, they'd become too much like Darden, drunk with arrogance. That's an exact lyric from Chacon, which they sang next. Then they sang again about feeling cursed and destined for a bad fate in bills, criminal love, sacrifice. The songs in that segment very emotionally delivered and performed. Criminal love was actually really, really impressive live. 
with the way the camera and their dance moves work together, like their moves would feel very jolting as the camera kind of jolted with them. Like, you know, in the chorus when it's those bland moments, those boom moments, those were accentuated. The last song was Bite Me, which was such a perfect choice because that was the layered meaning-filled sentiment of the webtoon. Like, that was more than just a sexy vampire concept. That was a core part of the story, what that means when you trust someone enough for that, for that to be the request. How committed you are to live in eternity with them, to pursue an eternal fate. So very meaningful for the webtoon story to, in the end, commit to this and say, yeah, bite me. And of course, a great ending just because it gets the crowd all hyped. It's a classic and it does have just fun, sensual connotations. A crowd-pleasing ending with deeper meaning for hardcore fans like me. And they had a dramatic return to the castle, walking to the back of the stage, getting on the risers and the doors, the image of iron gates closing in front of them, like sealing them behind the gates with the image of a red moon reappearing like it had at the start of the whole show. Excitingly, just like in the Manifesto tour, the story didn't end. So after the final song, another video played. This one showing each member on their own standing in front of this window display. It looked like it was in a church. So there's a clear interpretation, symbolically the symbol of repenting for your sins by yourself, left alone at the end of your life before the next one starts. But there's also symbolism you could see in the way they kind of just humbly, individually stared up at something. They're giving up their egos. Like the message about giving up their trifling power that is on screen at the end of the Bite Me video. It's so impressive how connected every form of media they tell their story through is, which extends to concerts. Interesting contrast, during the Manifesto tour, the final video showed them collectively, together as a group, entering the world beyond the gates. This time it started with them in the world beyond the gates together and ended with them off on individual endeavors which might have to do with the overarching theme of fate. Go where fate takes you, regardless of where it takes others. Then came the wait for the encore. It was quite fun to see the camera just pan to different signs in the crowd. Someone had a great one that was like, if 4 plus 4 equals 8, then he soon and I should date or something like that. Love that. There were a lot of good rhymey ones, punny ones, some fandom inside jokes. A woman who dressed up as a literal nun and held up a sign saying, come here and get some. Not sure how I feel about that, especially because later Jake said he got really scared and saw a ghost in the crowd. So I don't think scaring them was the intention, but... Although some people didn't get to keep theirs, and it seemed quite arbitrary whose was taken and whose got to stay. We've talked about sign etiquette at show before, especially in my TXT concert recap episode, my bad experience with, not even with security, but with concert goers. Moas have not been the nicest to me. I digress. Let's move on. When in hyphen retook the stage, they were totally back into the webtoon universe. They sang the theme song for it, One in a Billion, which really is just better live. Like, it feels so generic for an OST. I still love it, but you know, it's a typical OST. But then it's like, from good to great live. It just has a new energy. And he soon, all night he unleashed his inner rock star, but especially during this song. The facial expressions, his voice, he really is just a punk star. 
And then they sang Karma, a great B-side to end on, and thematically linked to the story of accepting fate in what karma had in store for Darden, the good karma hopefully, and Hyphen's characters have a really symbolic choice and just a good one for any concert encore. In my write-up on Substack, I talked about the Manifesto live show being about realizing stuff. The story of their discography brought to life was about breaking that line, that hyphen, crossing it, redrawing it, etc., taking fate back into their own hands. Now, this era is more about accepting parts of fate, trusting the universe will bring you where it needs to. So it's an interesting story twist that I think they really did bring to life well with this live show yet again. And again, it was a cool full circle moment with the manifesto show ending with them entering a new world and this show starting with them exploring what this world has to offer. So overall, they did another really incredible next level performance that really just took their multimedia storytelling to new heights and reminded me why I just adore them and their story so much. Now, as I put in my concert review on Substack, my one thumbs down, lots of pros, one big con. As I just detailed, their story was so immersive and cool, like they could play the Vegas Sphere. Not audience size, but just concept wise, that would be so cool. The surround sound, surround screens of the Dark Castle, Gothic meets princely Shakespearean, regal, Victorian lore. It's such a specific, immersive aesthetic and story, so unique to them, so irreplicable. And I put it this way in my review, when you're immersed in a story like that, that's not when you go to the bathroom. I didn't put it exactly like that, but when you're in the middle of a good show, you don't stop the binge watch when it's really getting good. You don't stop a movie and pause when the plot is really rolling now. And I just felt like they had this cool immersive story. I was watching a huge musical version of a movie, basically. And they killed their own momentum and paused the action to talk to the crowd. I do not remember them doing much of that on the Manifesto tour. I think part was just because they spoke less English and maybe weren't super comfortable talking to the crowd. They were extra nervous. They were more ricky But I also just thought it benefited being one of the concerts where they don't talk much. I do love sometimes going to those intimate shows. They feel intimate because there's quite a long talk break with the audience. That rapport is built. There is something special about a show with lots of talking. There's a cool new vibe added. But with certain artists and venues, I prefer the opposite. When they just go song to song to song and keep me sucked into the action. At first they did that. They were just son, son, son. I was just so in the zone, rocking out in time with the music. I've memorized every note to, every movement. I'm just so, so in the zone. And then they just stopped and talked and then got back into it multiple times. And usually I do love just hearing them talk and what they have to say. But honestly, it just at some points felt weird. Like, they were blowing through the set list so fast it's like they felt compelled to keep talking. Like, they got repetitive, they kind of just stood there sometimes. One time they showed off their handshake. It really felt like they were stalling. And sometimes they were, I guess, for outfit changes for other members, but it just felt like an excessive amount of breaking their own momentum, story-wise. So that was kind of a bummer. The venue, too. United Center lends itself to a non-stop show, not an intimate conversation. 
And it just felt like a missed opportunity because they won't be that group for long that still has such a small discography that they could theoretically cover every song. I mean, the only stuff that wasn't on the set list, Upper Side Dreamin', Mixed Up, Give and Taken, some Japanese singles, OSTs, that was pretty much it. They really did cover almost the whole discography. So they actually could have covered those last few songs that were not on the set list if they had talked less. So that just felt like a bummer, a missed opportunity, because how often do you get to see an artist perform every song they have before the catalog gets too big for that to be possible? But my review is, as you can tell also, very positive, more than negative, because I am so enthralled with their story. They're great entertainers. The choreography just brings it to life in such cool ways. They really all just showed they have that it factor. They can do this. They can pull off a massive multimedia story. Not everyone could. So big props to them. We'll definitely recommend seeing them in the future and see them again every chance I get. So Stan and Hyphen, thanks for hearing my thoughts. We will, of course, pick up this convo when Orange Blood comes out next month. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody!